0: This is Michael Cowan and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. He helps us pan for the gold inside ourselves.
1: You need to have grit. I mean, a lot of this is
0: grit. I feel like I've been made a better lawyer. They're talking about something that's real to them. You have to be really careful not to be Goliath. They saved a bunch of lives and changed society forever. But let's just begin
1: the conversation. Welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation, your source for guidance to win bigger verdicts, get more cases and manage your practice. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan.
0: We have a real treat for you today. We have a good friend of mine, Mike Leeserman, on the show. Michael's an attorney who handles trucking cases across the United States. He's the co-founder of the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys, and he wrote the leading treatise on trucking law, uh, the three-volume litigating truck accident cases. He's got a whole other angle on law that's really helped me a lot. He's got a book he wrote, uh, published through trial guides, called The Zen Lawyer, Winning with Mindfulness. It's a great read. He gives these great seminars. Uh, He is the one that gave me the courage to say no to certain types of cases, uh, to focus on what I'm good at. Uh, He shares his experience with his core methods through a series of workshops. He puts on with Jay Rinson-Welk and Josh Carton, uh, Josh was also a former guest on our show. I've been there. It's a great experience. Mike is an incredible trial lawyer. He's got verdicts that are just, I don't know how he gets them. They're really big on really tough facts. He's done it across the country. He's really inspired me, pushed me in a direction of personal growth uh, and business growth that has changed my life. And so I've asked him to talk today to hope that maybe you can get some of that benefit. We're gonna talk about something called the beginner's mind and how approaching litigation and keeping the beginner's mind can help and how the curse of knowledge can actually make it harder for you to communicate with the jury because you know things so well and they don't know it yet. His five core truths to litigation that he's come up with and how we can allow a jury to feel emotions for themselves rather than just seeing us feel the emotions. I'm super excited to have Michael on the show to share some of his expertise and wisdom with us. And Trial Learning Nation, we have Michael Lieserman. Michael, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing great.
2: Good to see you, Michael, as always.
0: It's always good to see you, too. Uh, you've actually done a lot for me and my practice. I don't know uh, how much you know uh, remember. Uh, but uh, you and I had, I think, breakfast in New Orleans a few years ago. And I was asking you how you got to your practice where you only did certain types of cases. And you said, well... Only take those types of cases. And, uh, you know, within a month I got the courage to stop taking non commercial car wreck cases. And it's one of the best decisions I've ever made
2: and I really appreciate uh, that. Yeah, you started out by you? almost making me cry. That's <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't be sorry. Uh, it's good to cry, uh, it's good to feel and um, to think. What I hope is that the things I do make a difference in the world that means representing clients getting big verdicts um, talking with other lawyers teaching learning from other lawyers so that just really warms my heart to hear uh actually had some good advice for somebody <laughs> you have
0: quite a bit of good advice It's helped me in my life uh, and i things you've taught me on jury selection have really helped me in trial uh the beginner's mind. I want to go talk about this in the podcast and the way I've approached depositions and examinations by trying to approach things with a beginner's mind instead of just getting in a rut of, oh, I know what I'm doing and I know what this case is and then missing a lot of things because I'm the expert and I already know everything and therefore I miss all the things that I
2: didn't really know. Uh, That's a great place to start, beginner's mind. Um, Shoshin, the Japanese would call it. And, And that translates into the martial arts also. So I love this that... When you become a black belt in, say, Aikido or any of the martial arts, many times in the West, at least I grew up thinking like, oh, that means you're the master of the black belt. Um, And that's actually not what it means. If you look at the, uh, that's the first level Dan, D-A-N, in Japanese. Uh, And so that, when you get your black belt, that means you're a beginner. So I like to... Many trials, many successes, um, as have you and everyone that's on your podcast. Um, And so I'd like to think of myself as a beginner trial lawyer. I have some skills. I've tried cases. I've had successes. I know how to introduce and exhibit an evidence. I know how to deal with jury selection and different things that are going on. And if I ever think I'm the expert at something better remind myself of beginner's mind because I know if I don't remind myself the jury is or my wife is or life will remind me
0: yeah I want to talk a little bit about that because you've actually written the book on trucking litigation and by written the book I mean you have a three volume set I have there in my office uh and everyone should get it by the way but then you say you go you try to go into trucking litigation with the beginner's mind despite the fact that you've done a lot of this and you really know what you're doing what is the
2: beginner's mind so um, Suzuki who really brought Zen um, from the west to the east or one of the main people brought it to San Francisco in the 50s uh, his book Zen Mind Beginner's Mind is just a translation of some of his talks and so the first sentence is something like in the beginner's mind there are many possibilities in the expert's mind there are few and I love that so it's it's the idea... So I took deposition every day this week so far. And there's this nervousness... And these were tr- trucking defense experts. Um, and there's a nervousness every time I go into a deposition. There's actually a feeling like I've never done this before. And and I have <laughs> many Man. times. Um, so the beginner's mind is not to come in and say... I know what I'm. I, I know exactly. You know, and I'm hesitating because I do know what I want. I go and so it's holding two things simultaneously. It's holding um, a confidence that I know what I'm doing, and I can kind of roll with the punches. I mean, I have to be a subject matter expert in what I do, but at the same time, it's, for lack of a better word, a humility. It's uh, um, not being a know-it-all. So when I ask a question. In deposition or trial, I ask a question because I want to know the answer. So I want to treat the other human being with respect. I certainly have a goal in taking a defense expert's deposition. My goal is not to um, just discover what the case is about. I already know what the case is about going into the deposition. I use the defense expert's depositions to prove my case. So I know there's like ABC that I want to get out of that expert. Now... The most common objection I get when i'm taking a defense expert's deposition is objection that's not what they're going to be talking about at trial that's not <laughs> what their report is about I say, my deposition i don 't care I know they want to talk about this that my client was speeding uh, or this that the you know the report says the truck company had a satisfactory rating. I get that I admit that I want to talk about for uh, company to be acting in a reasonably safe way, they should do drug and alcohol testing before they put someone on the road. Well, that's not what this case is about. I don't care. I'm asking the question the answer it. So maybe I'm straight from beginner's mind a little bit, um, but on the one hand I know what I want. I want to get the things that will prove the standards of care and duties in my case. On the other hand I, I know that I was probably the most arrogant little kid like i think in in school um i like to think back on it like i was bullied and when i think back on it maybe there was a good reason this oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just came to me i never said that out loud before but i was kind of an arrogant little kid like the know-it-all and i was you know maybe because i was like very physically small like i was the smart kid that had to show that off um, so um, i've had to learn to get away from that to ask a question and this is really super powerful at trial. If you ask a question of the other side, your side, and you're really asking for an answer. So I like to think of it as um, if, a, if a defense witness or any witness got on the stand and said, oh, the light, your client's light was red and they ran it. Then I'd actually kind of hesitate, take that in. And I'd probably say something like, oh, I. if that's the case, we should dismiss our case. Um, you know, I need to take a break, Your Honor. <laughs> now, <laughs> we do our homework so those things don't happen. Um, I mean, I have had things like that happen in cases. You know, the police officer gets up, the defense has gotten to him, they say something opposite of, of what you thought they were going to say. So that's a beginner's mind. That was a, a trial I had. and. The police officer gets up, and it had to do with conspicuity. Could you see? Could my client have seen the truck down the road on I-75? And uh, my case was going to be about, well, no, you couldn't see it. The police officer gets up and says, oh, you could see it. Well, how do you know you could see it? I shined a flashlight at it. Well, this is all new stuff. It wasn't in his deposition. He never told me this. Um, But when I hear that, so a beginner's mind is to hear that, to not blow up and go ballistic and move for a mistrial, they, re- and they think, well, wait a second, maybe that's true. Okay, what do I do with that? I um, ask some questions of the officer, and I actually end up just accepting that. Okay, when you shine the flashlight, you can see the reflection. Uh, in that case, and this, this kind of jumps forward, but... Uh, I think of the world and I think of my cases in five different cores the physical core, emotional, logical, motivational, and what I call the Zen core. And each of those cores has a truth, a simultaneous truth. So in that case, the logical core truth was you don't put a dump truck into the fast lane of I-75 in the middle of the night from a dead stop. That was something everyone conceded, everyone agreed with, that was clearly the facts that everyone agreed on, and so that became my logical core truth. And so that was the same case. So despite the fact that now the officer, you know, and at first I want to scream like, damn it, that's not what you're you know? Right. I think, well, I'm in front of the jury. The jury... We have this curse of knowledge when we're in front of a jury. We start talking about on August 6, 2008, blah, 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 and um, and that this motor carrier um, didn't have the proper operating authority. We start throwing these words out that sound like if someone were speaking, I don't know, Swahili or German or some language you don't know. <laughs> like we, we start talking in this language, and even... Even the, um, the facts, the underlying facts that we've lived with for so long, people just feel so submerged that I think they get lost, jurors get lost. So to me, if I were to take the five cores and, and just say, make it as simple as possible, I would say that for every case, I want two blanks filled in. The two blanks would be, this case is simple because blank. This case is important because blank. I've got to be able to fill in those blanks succinctly and just, it has to be something that's common sense and makes sense. Um, so I guess that's an example of beginner's mind. I heard the police officer say that. I, I mean, critically kind of challenged it and thought about it, I asked him a couple questions, and I realized actually, I think he did do that. I don't know why he didn't say it before. And even if he didn't, what am I going to do? Start fighting with the police officer in front of the jury? Um, So it's something I see lawyers do a lot. And one of the Zen Lawyer workshops I did recently, it's very powerful. Um, Working with a a great lawyer who came in and we were uh, dissecting post-trial, a bad verdict, a defense verdict. And what I realized was there's such a temptation for for all of us, because we hate being lied to. As a human being, you don't like to be lied to. We bring all of the anger into the courtroom without allowing the jury to experience it. So part of the idea of the Zen core and being a Zen lawyer, Zen means reality. It's experiential. And so to me, a trial, a deposition, really life, is about the experience. So here's the example. You have a case. Well, I can think of a case I had. Um, It was the last trial I had where the truck driver... The defendant was, you know, told the police one thing. Um, I rolled through the intersection, and then in her deposition said another thing, and then I think in a statement to her company said a third thing. So here's what I do in that case. What I don't do, and is the temptation, is to come in and start my opening saying this truck driver is a liar. Right. Right. Because that's a conclusion, and I want to show that to the jury. Not give them a conclusory statement. So, how do I do that? I have to recreate that. I have to have a beginner's mind. I have to set aside what I already know while still knowing it and say to that truck driver, So, tell us, get her out of her seat. And I had her stand next to me and put her hands on the invisible steering wheel and let's walk up, which is kind of like driving up physically in the courtroom to the stop. All right. Did you, and then show us exactly what you did. Did you roll? Did you stop? Oh no, I stopped. You're sure you didn't roll? No, I didn't roll. I stopped. And show us exactly where you stopped. And how long did you stop? And show us how long that is. And so on and so on. Okay, now she's shown us. Now the jury has seen that and she's shown it to the jury. Now I can say, And in that case, I chose to put the police officer on first. Many times I put the truck driver on first. Mm -hmm. Um, Put the police officer on first, who had already testified. She told me she rolled through at five miles an hour. Um, So, okay, I've seen what you've shown me. We just heard from Officer Jones, and we can pull it up here on the screen. You told him you were going five miles an hour. Is that true, that you told that to him? Oh, no, no, I don't know why he would say that. I didn't tell it to him. Um, he, Okay. Um, do you know why he would have written that? No, I, don't, I didn't tell that to him. Okay, you didn't tell that to him. I'm not going to fight anymore with her. But what I've just done is now the jury. She's impeached herself in front of the jury, not me just throwing all these documents. And I think now the jury can be a little pissed off. Instead of me bringing the anger, these people are lying to me. Now the jury can feel, wait, she's... That's inconsistent um, yeah. you know, and to continue to play that out,
0: yeah, and it's really important that you know our goal is to create an emotion within the jury, not just to show how we feel, uh, and I want to go back to your your officer with a flashlight. Uh, you know it's really easy when somebody springs something new on you in trial, which happens. Uh, they come up with a new story, uh, they didn't disclose something to you, and you have the right to be upset by that, but if you show that anger. If you just started yelling, you never said that to me before, you're making that up, what does the jury see? The officer says that I shined it with a flashlight and I can see it and that lawyer is mad because that lawyer's case just got destroyed. That's how it would look to the outside because the jury has not been on that journey with you. What they're experiencing in the courtroom is this lawyer is really upset by what this officer
2: said that must have really hurt his case. I think worst case is they actually think you're mad because they just showed you up. Even if the jury doesn't think that, there's, there's a couple other really bad things about that. I think the worst thing about that is I want to be the truth in the courtroom. I want to be the person that's grounded and people look to for guidance, whether that's the judge, the jury, my client, maybe the defense, I don't know. Um, that's so important to have that um, credibility and groundedness, a physical groundedness that's part of the physical core. And if you let your anger take you away, now it doesn't. There's times to have some righteous anger. I just think that lawyers way overdo it. Right. Probably one time out of ten that lawyers show that kind of anger in the courtroom is it really helpful? And the other thing about that, which I've learned from my wife Rena, we practice law together, um, is that you take the anger from the jury. That in some ways, there's only so much space for emotion. In a courtroom or in life, um, and notice it in like your intimate relations and with your significant other, if you have one, or your you know other significant relationships in your life. So I'll notice that between reen and me, if one of us gets angry, the other one, oh, I'm sorry, you know, it's rare that we both get angry. If we do, we back down right away. So there's there's something about you getting angry doesn't give room for the jury to be angry. Now, on the other hand, when Someone's just lied to you on the stand, and the, and the jury's witnessed it, and you're acting calm and collected, but firm. I'm not saying wishy-washy about it. The jury is they're actually kind of rooting like, wait, why don't you attack them? Why don't you, right. you know, isn't that a great feeling for them to be feeling that versus saying, oh, maybe you overreacted.
1: Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide. Are you an attorney with a catastrophic injury or wrongful death case you'd like to discuss with host Michael Cowan? If so, you can reach Michael by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to michael at cowanlaw.com.
0: And so just uh, because I know the ending, I don't think a lot of our listeners do. So you have a trial, you prepared for it. You think that this, you're going to be able to show this truck was not conspicuous are hard to see at at night. Beginner's mind, we've got to practice what we preach here, right? And so the officer comes up and says, no, you can see a fine. I shined had a flashlight on it. That tape was, reflective tape was shining. Uh, and you did not get upset. Uh, so how did that case turn out?
2: Oh, oh, thank you. I always forget <laughs> to brag about myself. Well, it was a record um, wrongful death verdict in Ohio. <laughs> it was, for consortium only, it was a $16 million verdict. So, um, so yeah, I mean, th- this isn't just... Um, Oh, be a nice guy. And uh, well, and I do want to be a, a nice guy. If not a nice guy, I want to be compassionate in the world and do good in the world. And thankfully, I've realized that that goes hand in hand with being a good lawyer. It'd be a real moral dilemma to me if I thought that, you know, being a real jerk and being angry and losing control of my emotions if I actually learned that that resulted in better verdicts for my client that would be a huge moral dilemma but thank yeah. goodness they seem to coincide uh, doing the right thing and uh, getting successful verdicts
0: and so I want to talk about you've written a, a recent book uh, The Zen Lawyer The Zen Lawyer Winning with Mindfulness and I want to talk about you know just kind of general what's that book about
2: yeah so the, the book goes through the five cores And it really came from, for for decades, uh, on and off, uh, and really quite on now for the last five, six years. Uh, But on and off, uh, I've done some type of Zen meditation, which is pretty much silent, um, sitting, watching your breath meditation. And then I would kind of stray from that. And then what I found, I remember very specifically there were, a few trials I had where I just felt on. You know, in sports you would call it a flow. Like maybe you go to shoot the basket. I've never had that experience. And it just feel, <laughs> feels perfect. I'm a short guy. Um, you know, where there's different times in our life people have experienced this kind of flow. And for me it was being very um, present and just listening with all my senses. So I had a trial this was in maybe 2009 I remember I was brought in kind of late. All the depositions had already been taken. And there was a truck that hit and hurt somebody. And then there was a construction company that was sued for not setting up the construction zone properly. And then the construction zone brought in the city, saying that they didn't design the construction zone properly. So the, the supervisor for the city was on the stand. I don't even think they had deposed him. So I'd never talked to this guy before. So I get up and I think I usually think of like what are one, two, or three things that I want to get from this witness. Otherwise, I'm not gonna call them, or in that case, I'm not gonna cross-examine them if I don't have anything to get from them. And so I get up and I remember what I asked him some. Well, they they relay this to you, yes, and did they ever tell you this? No. And just listening to him again, like really asking a question and listening. I got this sense, and I just went with it. And the, and the sense was, now, Mr. Supervisor, um, this construction company really didn't listen to you. They really didn't respect what you had to say, did they? And then kind of furled his brow, and... No, they didn't. <coughs> now, if they had... I, I, I'm not sure that this would have happened. <laughs> 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 wow. Um, so that was, um, I I think that was one of the very big reasons that that case was a victory. So that was listening to another human being, kind of noticing, and I might have been wrong about that. I, I had a good feeling about it, so I went with it. What if he would have said, no, they, they re- listened to me, they respected me. Okay, no harm done. I would just move on or finish my questioning. So I started noticing those kind of things in trial and that I could have this real presence of mind in trial. And then I remembered, oh yeah, that Zen meditation I've been doing when my kids were growing up (laughs) in the early 90s. um, How could I bring that kind of presence that I can have in the courtroom? You know, in the courtroom we can turn off our cell phones and, and I don't have to worry about how many emails came in. It's like one of those times when I can be unattached from my Apple device um, how can I bring that into my life and then that got me back into Zen meditation or what I call Zazan and so that's what the book is about um, going through first of all physically what do you do to sit in Zazan which is seated reality and the way I talk about that for lawyers as you know because you I know this is part of your personal practice, is to sit silently with your eyes open so we're not going into like a blank trance state. We're not going into some happy space where there's unicorns and rainbows. You know. <laughs> can't say like, uh, the the. so officer, you say you did shine your flashlight? Oh shit. Um, <laughs> uh, your honor, just a moment please. I can't like go sit down, shut my eyes and think like, unicorns, rainbows, bring my blood pressure down. <laughs> this will be okay. Like I can't do that. Um, so the the Zazen, the seated meditation with your eyes open, noticing what's going on around you, noticing physically, emotionally, logically what's going on around you, is just practice for then walking meditation, for cooking meditation, for trial meditation, so that you've practiced what to do when things happen. So things are the physical things. If right now... um, I'm looking out the window, and I see a flag flapping. Okay, the flag is flapping. I don't need to stop what we're doing and think, oh, the flag is flapping. (laughs) The flag's flapping. That's just something that happens. Well, if I can notice my emotions that way, it doesn't mean not to get angry. There's times in life to get angry. When a company has done something to hurt people, you should be angry about it. Um, But I can notice it like I notice the flag flapping. I notice my anger. Okay. What do I do with it? How do I control my anger instead of it controlling me? This officer just said, he shined the flashlight. It's like the flag flag. That's what he said. I can't go back in time and undo it. Getting angry about it isn't going to do anything. Um, okay, he said it. Move on. i got to deal with it. Um, and that's what the, um, the sitting meditation, the zazen, just helps me practice. <laughs> so you've talked about five cores. What are the... F- Five cores. So I I noticed as I was thinking about the truths, I mean truth is something that's really important to us as lawyers or should be, right? That's what should we're be. all about. <laughs> um, and so I noticed that there's really simultaneous truths that are important. There's the physical truth of how something happened. That's just at the at the scene. Was the turn signal on? What were the conditions like? Um, it might even be before the scene of actually what happened, but there's certain physical realities, and that's super persuasive. You know, people believe what they see and those kind of things, and I think that can get overlooked. And that's also something that's very Zen. You know, if you look at a Zen haiku or poem or writings, um, many times they'll be about. Um, like a rock or a piece of nature or, or the seasons You look up the full moon shines, you know, something like that. So why is that? That's because that's a common experience. Like that's something we don't have to put an interpretation on. If this is the table table. <laughs> All right. Um, and, and so in the courtroom, the same thing. So many times there'll be arguments about who changed into whose lane or what did the nurse or the doctor do or whatever you're, Disputed facts are in your case, and by trying to recreate in the courtroom the physical reality of what happened, Um, and and frankly, where I first learned to do this, and I recommend to everyone is Trial Lawyers College. They're very good at um, psychodrama and recreations, you know, to help uh, the jury and really the judge, right? See, hear, touch, smell, taste. What went on? So those five senses, that's the physical core. Once you get that down, I mean, that's just the very basics of it. So what do we do with that? Uh, there's an emotional core that's very important in every case. And each of these cores, I realized, really starts with me. So the emotional core, what are my emotions around the case? I better figure that out. An example I love to give is around money, right? Because civil plaintiffs, trial lawyers, we're going in asking for money. So it's helpful, I would suggest, to know what your emotions are around money. Um, I've thought about this a lot. I I know my emotions around money. And for a long time, I felt embarrassment about this. And I've learned that self-judging is really one of the worst things we can do as human beings and as lawyers. My early memories of money... My early emotional memories were my parents screaming at each other about money. Why do you charge this up on a credit card? And we're trying to save up for a vacation. And, and I remember crying as a little boy, like screaming inside. Like, I'm not going to let money be an issue in my life. I'm going to make enough money that this will not be a concern. And just understanding that about myself helps me um, understand why I make certain decisions.
0: Yeah, the opposite. I had guilt about making money that kept me from making a lot of money and I think subconsciously led to bad decisions that would have caused me to lose the money I made and I didn't really start being financially successful on a sustained basis until I changed my emotional relationship with not
2: feeling bad about being successful. That's a great example. I think there's a lot of lawyers who who have that relationship with money too and you can have both of those relationships anger and and embarrassment and so what happens if you aren't aware of that well I think lawyers don't get larger verdicts when they when they are disappointed with a verdict for two main reasons one is they don't ask for enough money and more importantly number two is they don't believe it and so like you're saying you noticed maybe a certain shame. Where does that come from? And isn't it powerful? I would say it is very powerful. It's important to see that as a gift. If a juror says, well, aren't you embarrassed to be asking for this kind of money? To understand within myself and to be able to answer honestly, yeah, there there is a part of me that is. Yeah. And to be able to talk about that. Because the the alternative is to push back and fight with the jury. That doesn't get you anywhere. Um, I very much believe in inclusive jury selection as opposed to exclusive. Some people would hear that and just say, oh, they're stricken for my jury. I think there's a time to strike jurors. um, And it's also a time to create a bond and rapport using real human emotions. So it's important for lawyers to be aware of their emotions around a case. And it's not just money. It's also um, other feelings you have about the the case that the jurors might share that are really where a lot of decisions lie. uh, And maybe shouldn't, but they do. Maybe it's decisions based on race or education or other things that you're worried about. And I find there's a great power to being able to bring those out and discuss them so we talked about the physical core which is you know
0: what happened uh and, and bringing that in the physical truth bringing that to the jury the emotional core and the emotional truth uh and i think one example you would use with an emotional truth is uh the father loved his son can you tell us a little bit about that case where that was uh, an emotional truth and, and how the other side was trying to diminish the damages.
2: Yeah, I certainly remember that. It uh, was a a case um, where I, I was really so angry that the truck company came in and brought in uh, siblings, of, sisters of um, this man who had been killed, um, trying to say bad things about the relationship between... the the brother had been killed and his father uh, and all kinds of dirt and and really bad things so spent a lot of time with the client saying well they're saying this about you and this about you and coming up with a cross examination that I believe would have responded um, to all of that and like the motivations why are you saying that and this kind of thing so we spent all this time coming up with the cross-examination that would expose the siblings and what their motivations were and why all these things weren't true and then i started thinking about what's the emotional core truth emotional core truth is this father loved his son and that's the thing that's true no matter what and i have to show and his testimony really showed that and his grief was real and then I started thinking, okay, how does how does this cross examination is that in sync with what we want to do? And it struck me, no, it's it's not in sync with the emotional core truth. So this is one of his other sons testifying against him. Correct. It was right. one of the siblings. They were all different siblings. Um, yeah, e- exactly. Um, so yeah, the other sisters, brothers. So so let's say, all right, one of the brothers comes in in the defendant's case-in-chief, in the truck company's case-in-chief, and says all these bad things about his father and the relationship the father and the son had. And then with the client's permission, what we ended up doing, is a case I tried with uh, Ken Levinson and Chris Stambaugh, um, so we decided we'd get up and say, after this sibling had testified all the bad things about his father, stood up and said, Your father has asked me to tell you that he loves you and he's asked me not to cross examine you no questions your honor. and then sat down now in closing we're able to say we didn't agree with all of those things there's a lot of explanations for it Um, and you heard the the client used his name say Joe you heard Joe explain this and this and this but it was bad enough that this truck company killed his son. We're not going to let them literally add insult to injury. We're not going to let them come in and fr- and further destroy a relationship he has with his other kids. He would rather lose this case than have to come and attack his kids. Because he loves all of his kids. That's the emotional core truth. I can't prove that he loved his kid who was killed... So, but he would he would uh, put down his other kids in court in front of others. That just that doesn't. It shows the opposite. It shows he's an opportunist versus he's someone who loves his children.
0: Or is it? Yeah, attacking his children
2: is showing he doesn't really care because he's willing to tear them down. That's right. So show me, not tell me. It's not just someone getting up saying yes, I loved my son. Yes, I love my children. He was showing it. I'll be willing to. To go to extremes. I don't care. Um, so it was in sync with emotional core truth. So that's just an example of how, when you tie into this and actually write down in your case, here's the physical core truth, here's the emotional core truth, here's the logical core truth. Um, how do you act in sync with that? So the logical core truth starts with yourself and noticing how you think about the case, like from the very beginning. When you're critical of the case, note those things so that you can talk about them with the jury. When I first saw this case, I thought that too. My client rear-ended someone on the highway. I didn't think I was going to take this case. So what you're doing is, all you're doing is giving voice to what the jury's already thinking anyhow. I mean, you don't really think things that are that unique. <laughs> if you if you thought something critical, probably some juror is. Most likely some juror is. And then you start from the same point And you can walk the jury through to experience why what looked at first like there's no case here, why this is really important. This is simple because blank. This is important because blank. So I'll actually come up with what is the logical core truth and return to it. So in the case we talked about with the dump truck, I'll put a stop dump truck into the fast lane of I-75 in the middle of the night. With that as the guiding principle, that's what I come back to time and again, all of these core truths, in cross-examination or direct examination. So in that case, there were five experts on the other side. And the crash reconstructionist gets up and says, oh, your client was speeding, doing 79 miles an hour in a construction zone. I say, yeah, okay, we accept that. And wouldn't you agree that if a construction company's being reasonably careful. They wouldn't direct a dump truck from a dead stop to enter the fast lane of I-75 in the middle of the night. Oh, I wasn't hired to do that, uh, to analyze that. Okay, they put on the visibility and conspicuity expert. Well, this was how visible it was, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, do you agree that a company that's being reasonably safe wouldn't put a stop dump truck and blah, blah, blah? (laughs) Oh, well, I wasn't hired to analyze that, um, and so by the end of the case, I've said that fifty or sixty times, and the jurors can repeat that. They, you know, as a matter of fact, at the end of the case, they came up to me and they said, "One of them said something like that." Well, I just think they shouldn't have put that dump truck there. <laughs> oh yeah, that's what, that's what we've been talking about. So it allows you to be the truth in the courtroom. Come back to something that's indisputably true. It's really the idea of winning before you walk into the courtroom, that you have these core truths that guide you.
0: And you you know, you have a five cores in your book, but you used to talk about a three-core method. Uh, so what was the three cores that you originally thought that they were?
2: Yeah, thanks for asking that, because I, I know you um, did that a long time ago, where we had the physical, emotional, and logical core. And as I've worked with this, and that book and that thought process, like really dissecting those cores... Happened over more than five years of just really <laughs> working hard on that, uh, my life's work so far. Um, and what I realized is there's a lot of methods out there. And, you know, some, there's some of the real popular ones right now that I just don't like at all. Um, there's some that I find some of it helpful, some are tremendously helpful. And what I tell people is study them all. Like just because I don't like something, I mean, study them all. Um, and take what works for you the best of all of them. And it really, I mean, I'm a real fan of all the writings and trial lawyers, and it all comes down to me proving standards of care and proving damages. Imagine that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, um, making the facts bigger than the case. If you go back to Mo Levine and everything that's been done since, arguably go back to Aristotle. I mean, it's, it's all saying the same things. And then as I was... You know, this is where I said I originally was in the courtroom and wondered, how can I be this present in my life? And then as I got more into my Zen practice um, and took the Zen vows, which include uh, to strive to do no harm, to reduce suffering in the world and do good in the world, that really became important guidance for me in, in all the decisions I make. Do I want in or out of this partnership? Do I want to take this case? Do I want to take this speaking engagement? I look at it and say, will this reduce suffering in the world? That includes my suffering and others. Will this do good in the world in real tangible ways? And as I thought about that more and more, it was important that I added that as a core because this is not a gimmick. The physical, emotional, logical core is like a trick. There's a popular method right now. I can't believe I just saw one of its proponents, you'd know what I'm talking about, but I'm just trying to not right. badmouth other things, um, where they, they actually use the word trick. Well, here's a way you can trick the jurors. I was aghast. Like I, yeah, We're not trying to trick anybody. <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting to the truth. And if you're not, then that's not a system I want to be part of. And so that's why the um, motivational core, which is to reduce suffering, do good in the world, To look at my motivations first, and those are what my motivations are. And then to talk with the jury and be aware of their motivations. So some of the the methods out there are what I call fear-based. And it's assuming that people act out of greed and selfishness. Yes, we do. And we act out of altruism. Scientifically, that's been proven. Um, FMRIs now show that, cognitive neuros- neuroscience. And I want to speak to both of those, the greedy part of me and everyone and the part that wants to do good. And it bothers me when some of the you know, popular trial methods just talk about tricking people and how to make them fearful. And it ignores that most of us want to really do good. And <clears throat> for some jurors, the motivation is not selfish, is they want to help people. Now, in in a closing, I want to be in a position where the testimonies led us to a point, in every case I'd like to be able to say something like, my client's done everything they can to help themselves, they can't do anymore, now they need you. And when a juror believes that, because it's true, that they really have done what they can, and now, without the resources, without the money, without the acknowledgement that the money gives... There's an emptiness that people want to help. So to me, the motivational core, what motivates us all, was huge. It is huge. It's super important. Uh, And it's also can help guide us in our settlements. I'll try to write into settlement documents uh, changes. So, for example, a truck company will settle, and we want you to agree in writing that all the future trucks you buy will have automatic emergency braking or other safety technology. I've entered into settlements where I've insisted that the truck company have remedial brake training for all of its mechanics because they didn't know what the heck they were doing. It was clear. I remember in one mediation where they said, well, I mean, we've offered you a lot of money. You're not going to walk away from that. I said, I'll talk to my client and we're both going to walk away. And we literally walked into the parking lot and they followed <laughs> us out. And so, well, wait, wait, like, you, you don't do that. You're a... Lawyers don't walk away from the money. Well, I'm getting in my car. No, no, no. Come back in. Come back in. We'll talk about it. And they ended up agreeing to these remedial uh, break lessons for their mechanics. So how can we as trial lawyers, we have more power than most uh, to do good in the world and reduce suffering. So I'm very conscious of that. That's where the motivational core got added. And then the Zen core. So again, Zen means reality. This is the the living core this is first of all it starts with myself and a certain wisdom that I try to develop and it goes back to where we started a beginner's mind of having simultaneously a confidence and a humility so another way to think about it I mean in Zen Buddhism, the the idea of interdependence. Wisdom means interdependence, kind of seeing the connection of all things. There's another way to think about it. Um, There's a famous uh, Jewish saying that you should walk around, um, I think one of the Hasidic masters talked about you, um, you should walk around with two slips of paper, one in each pocket. And in one pocket, the saying is, It is for me for whom the world was created. And in the other pocket, it should say, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I'm nothing but dust. And so the way that story goes is is life, the secret to life is knowing when to reach into which pocket. And I like that story. And the more I thought about it, for me, it's really reaching into having access to both of those pockets all the time. How can I both be confident and know in the courtroom I'm right? And that's where the core truths come from. So I can't be so cocky to think I'm right about everything and go back to that like middle school, high school, Michael who thought he knew everything. But I do know that that father loved his son. I know that. And I know you don't put a stop-dump truck in the Like I know that. So I can be firm in that knowledge. And then, the ashes, ashes dust to dust, I can simultaneously hold... In some ways, this is all meaningless. In some ways, this is the most important thing ever. And in some ways, in a hundred years, in a thousand years, I'll be dead, no one will remember this case, it really won't matter. I need to have both of those frameworks so I don't become so self-critical and my blood pressure gets so high that I can't uh, work efficiently. And at the same time, uh, just being present. So the Zen core... Ideally, the Zen core truth becomes that you and the jury and the case are really one that uh, so there 's verbs attached to this to like sense the case is the physical to feel the case is the emotional to think the case is the logical to give meaning to the case is the motivational and to be the case is the zen core, and to realize that a trial is an experience it is not an archaeological dig where you're looking at what happened in the past it's about the jurors in the courtroom in real time experiencing what happened and it includes the verdict because if you just think about the, if it were just taking the facts and analyzing them we could use a computer it's about the people in the courtroom who are making a decision and so that's the Zen court to be the case and that we've lived this case for a day or five days or 30 days, however long your trial's taken. Uh, and it includes the verdict. Um, so this is where uh, Carl Bettinger's book, uh, Twelve Heroes, One Voice, or Twelve Voices, One Hero. was Anyhow, a good book. Whichever. Twelve Heroes, One Voice. Twelve Heroes, One Voice, that, of course, because the verdict is the voice. Um, and, and so that came about. Carl's brilliant. I love Carl. Um, and he talks about in that book it was a conversation with John Jacobson the filmmaker and so the way that happened was I was at a tri lawyers college regional and Carl was on the staff there and John Jacobson was a speaker and I asked a question I said you know you've taken us through the hero's arc the Joseph Campbell story and and all these kinds of things um, and I'm a little confused because I try to focus on the defendant to show what they've done wrong but your hero's journey—whose journey is it? Is it my? Is it the plaintiff? Is it the defendant? Um, and then this is where Carl's wisdom came in. We had this long conversation then, where, where he steered the conversation and realized, oh wait, the hero—the hero's journey in the courtroom—is the jury. And so, so that's where there's actually these simultaneous stories going on, not just the cores. There's the plaintiff's story, the defendant's story, the jury's story. And when those all meld, that becomes the the Zen core truth. Um, I'm fascinated with story. I know a lot of us as trial lawyers are and study story. I'm actually, I'm um, at the beginning or about a quarter of the way through a two-year um, program in storytelling that I've been studying. And it's about transformational storytelling, actually how people use it in like a religious context to inspire and change themselves and others so um maybe there'll be a book coming out of that but I oh, cool. very much thinking about um how at the end of a trial i mean you've been there you've had some amazing results not just the numbers but you've told me stories you said one of the is it okay if i tell this yeah. story uh, i guess you'll edit it out if it's not okay <laughs> but um i was so moved um when you, you called me or emailed me, I remember what you said. You had a trial. Great result. And at the end, in Texas, of all places, the judge comes down and after the jury left, gave you a hug. That just speaks worlds about who you are as a person and as a lawyer. And we've all been there. Hopefully, listeners have gotten to experience that, where a jury, a juror comes to you and says, that experience really changed my life you've gone through something together and so if you do a trial right if it's really is important and this case is important because of blank then you've transformed by the end of the case the judge has the defense has believe it or not and the jury has so I'm, right now I'm very much thinking about this idea of transformational storytelling and what is it that's happening in the courtroom how are we Making change because the motivation better be to change something; otherwise, uh, it's not as motivational.
0: Something else I I learned, you know, I went to your workshop.
2: Uh, I think then you were calling it the three core workshop. I'm trying to remember. We were, and now it's the Zen lawyer workshop. It's all the it's all the same thing. It just keeps evolving, and it hopefully, can will continue.
0: To. Then my motivation for going was that I was getting what most people consider to be good verdicts, but I felt were incomplete verdicts. There you know, were more money than was being offered, more money than most other lawyers were getting on some of their cases, but they didn't seem to me to be enough. It didn't seem to me to be justice. And I knew there was something holding me back. Uh, and I felt like I got a lot out of that. It was you know, only three days, but I felt like I got a lot out of that, and my uh, trial results have been, you know, by and large, better. I have not been undefeated since I've left, unfortunately, but... Uh, the ones I've won, I think I've—they've I've, been more satisfying, not just the number but the experience. And, and one thing I've worked with, and I just wanted to like talk to you a little bit about, it, is the concept of non-attachment. Because uh, you know, my thought of non-attachment is someone just goes in there, they don't really care, they're just winging it, uh, which is not at all the case. So, how does the what is the concept of non-attachment, and how does that work to try to how does that tie into trying a case?
2: Yeah, let me answer that the best I can, and and this would be a good point to, to mention that that uh, workshop. So thanks for that question, and now would be a good time to mention that the, uh, the Zen Lawyer Workshop, which has been called the Core Workshop, uh, is I'm one of three teachers, uh, Joshua Carton, who I know you've interviewed and has been very uh, much a teacher and influential in my life, and now a great friend. Um, is one of the teachers there um, and, and an integral part we've developed this together and the third teacher is uh, Rinsen Chay Rinsen White, who's a uh, Zen Buddhist abbot and priest and a fifth degree uh, black belt in Aikido so we developed that together and the non-attachment question certainly would be better for Rinsen but I'll answer it the best I can okay um, So, non-attachment could sound like not caring and that's not it at all. Um, non-attachment, it's a little bit like the beginner's mind we were talking about earlier. It's not being attached to the result, but believing in the process. So if I come into the courtroom and what is on my mind the whole time is how to win, then I'm less likely to win. So. I've heard that uh, William Hurt, the actor William Hurt, has this mantra as he's uh, getting ready for a scene, process, not product, process, not product, process, not product. And I'll remind myself of that, that in trial, in deposition, whatever we're doing, it's the, it's the process. Um, so when the police officer gets up and gives the statement that really ticks me off, I'm not attached at that moment to thinking, oh, I'm going to lose now. I can't, I can't afford to do that. I have to be in the moment, deal with that witness. Um, it's also not getting attached to the emotion, which is different. I'm not saying don't feel the emotion. So it's okay to be angry. You know, When someone gets up and says, yeah, we chose not to have that safety device. We knew it would kill people. You should be angry. So feel the anger. Don't be attached to it. Att- being attached to it is, what, is when the anger controls you and you're not able to control the anger and remain composed, or at least to recognize when you're losing control. Because I know a lot of lawyers have that problem, and they'll say, I, I didn't even realize what happened, and I just kind of lost it. And that's, that's not helpful. We want to be in control in the courtroom. So what does it mean for you? How has that helped you, non-attachment? For me, like in jury selection, for example, instead of
0: talking to somebody and thinking, okay, how am I going to get this person struck in for cause? Or, oh my gosh, he said something that hurt me. Is to, like I don't take notes anymore during jury selection. I have other people in there taking notes for me. I don't think about strikes for cause. Uh, I get them, but I don't think about them, if that makes any sense. I just sit there and listen to somebody and talk to them and respect them. Uh, and I'm not attached to, is this person going to help me? Is this person going to hurt me? Just, I am listening to you. I, I want to hear what you have to say and I'm going to respect what you have to say. Uh, and just the whole process, just instead of trying to control the jurors and making them do what I want, I'm just going to go through the process. I'm going to respect them. I am going to share with them and then I'm just going to trust them to do the right thing.
2: Uh, yeah, that's great. I, And I'm thinking as you're saying that, that of course that's true because how can you be in the moment in conversation with someone if you're attached, the idea of non-attachment, I guess, uh, if you're attached means that your mind is somewhere else than just in the moment because you're attached to winning, attached to being in your mind and thinking about how am I going to strike this person? And that's that's horrible. I mean... the the lawyer who, I, I just can't do this, and I, and I hear what you're saying, like, I, d- I don't work with notes, I can't do that, so the danger is, of course, if you have your notes for cross-examination, or for jury selection, and someone gives you something that's, you know, oh, yeah, well, my son was killed in a cr- crash, and then you flip the page and say, oh, and have you ever had a no, 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 wait. Did you hear what they just said? Like, exactly. Listen to what the heck's going on.
0: In the whole not showing human emotion, when someone says my son was killed in a crash, you don't say, oh, well, then you'd understand what my client went through." <laughs> well, <laughs> what kind of person are you? Or could you still be fair if you're on the defense? You know, that's not, it's like, it should be, oh, my God, that's horrible. Exactly. Are you okay? How are you doing? And that's the human response. And, and to stop worrying about being a lawyer The other thing I noticed, you know, at the Trial Lawyers College, there's something called a listening exercise where, you know, one person talks and another person tries to just tune in and then kind of repeat back what that person said or the meaning of what that person said and to see whether they got it or not. And I would notice one of the things, I went to Trial Lawyers College 20 years ago, and uh, believe it or not, and whenever I'd come back from there or from, I used to be very involved, and go back from a world where people actually are listening to each other. Uh, to the real world, where most of the time when you have a conversation, each person is thinking about what they're going to say next rather than actually listening to what the other person is saying. And I realized that, you know, it was so refreshing to be in that world. If I give that gift to a juror, if I actually listen to them non judgmentally and care about what they have to say and don't try to manipulate that, that maybe they have that same warm feeling that I got.
2: What a great way to. Uh, fail to <clears throat> meet the expectations of a jury of jurors who expect the plaintiff 's lawyer to come in and give a sob story and manipulate them and um instead there 's this radical honest open listening and communication and right away it's uh it 's a pattern interrupt i call it it yeah. causes someone to just to stop and and have a different, it's the start of, of showing this is going to be an experience. This is something that matters. This is something that's special. Um, and you start right off the bat with your credibility, your honesty, uh, in just listening. So I, I agree with you
0: 100%. And I'd like to talk to you for hours, but we are running uh, out of time. I know that uh, you need to go give a speech here in a few minutes. Uh, if people want to learn more, obviously they can get your book from trialguides.com, Uh but you also have these great workshops. How do people learn about your
2: workshops if they want to go to one? So for the workshops, you can go to dot com, and it'll announce the future workshops. Right now we're working on 2019 dates. So those are very meaningful to me. Uh, people see, I'm very glad to hear it was helpful to you. We've had people who have now come back a couple times, uh, and I love putting those on. It's a very... Um, intimate, powerful workshop, again, with Joshua Carton, Rinson, and myself. Teaching. And, and
0: I would encourage people to go, no one's going to try to change your religion. People are respectful. It's more of a way of approaching life in cases that uh, is very helpful and actually works.
2: Yeah, it's I mean, it's non-theistic. You can be atheist and come, you can be Jewish, you can be Christian, Muslim. Those are all compatible. What we're doing is just sitting and paying attention to our breath so that we can pay attention to life and endures and uh, live fully to feel and think and, and give meaning to our life fully well
0: michael thank you so much for sitting down with me and i look forward to next time i see you which is probably in about 10 minutes
2: of the seminar we're going to thank you for doing these podcasts michael you're doing good in the world by uh, by spreading uh, really um, just one amazing person after another i hope that i've helped continue in that thank you
0: Thank you for joining us today on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show with Michael Leiserman. Don't forget to visit our website at www.triallawyernation.com to opt into our mailing list and stay up to date on your new episodes. I always love hearing from you, so please continue contacting us via email at podcast at or send us a message through our Trial Lawyer Nation Facebook page. In fact, uh, we do read them, we do listen, and our next episode is gonna be done specifically to address the request of one of you. Last week, we created a private group called Trial Insider Circle on Facebook. This exclusive group will allow you to hear about podcasts before they air, interact with the show, as well as get a sneak peek at some of the behind-the-scenes moments. So if you're on Facebook, find us and ask to join, and we'd be glad to have you join us. Thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation.
1: We look forward to talking with you again soon as we continue to explore powerful insights from our amazing host and remarkable guests here on Trial Lawyer Nation. Until then, please be sure to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes or your favorite listening app so we can continue to reach more listeners. Visit us at www.triallawyernation.com to send us a message, listen to previous podcasts, or learn more about Michael Cowan and our guests.